0: Hey, guys, before we get into it, stick around to the end of the podcast for a special interview with one of our first ever Wisecrack Plus Patreon podcast correspondents. To learn more about that, you can go to wisecrackplus.com and on to the show. Hey, everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecrack's Movie Podcast.
1: Show me the meaning.
0: My name is Jared, and as you probably noticed, it's Austin doing the show me the meaning shout this time. Unfortunately, because Ryan is in Tennessee at his grandma's funeral, unfortunately. So if you guys follow Ryan on Twitter or anything, you know, give him a little love uh, because it's never a fun thing. But anyway, my name is Jared. and I'm joined here by some of the show me the meaning crew. You got Austin. Hello. And Claire is back with us. Hi. And today we've got a special guest, one of the hosts of the Mad About Movies podcast, Kent Garrison. How are you, Kent? Hey, good to be here, guys. Doing great. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to be breaking down the 1996 film Fargo, written and or whatever, directed by Joel and Ethan Coen, starring Francis McDormand and William H. Macy. So let's go ahead and, as always, get some first impressions. Let's start with... Claire since she hasn't been on the podcast for so long so Claire uh, first time you've seen the movie and what's it like revisiting it,
2: uh, it No, this was my first time seeing the movie um, and I watched it this morning so that it was especially fresh <laughs> um, and uh, I feel like I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this but I didn't love it mm. um, oh okay yeah I, I thank God
0: because I was the hater last podcast so <laughs> it's, good, it's good that we yeah. have a new fresh hater
2: <laughs> that was cabin in the woods right
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: I I won't let you live that down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was weird because I've enjoyed every Coen Brothers movie I've ever seen before. And I was like, oh, yeah, Burn After Reading. And this has Francis McDormand. And this is going to be like the Big Lebowski, but without the White Russians. Like, this is going to be great. And um, I don't know. I felt like the, I mean, you know, the Coen Brothers always kind of like smash you over the head with their themes. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't get a lot out of it. <laughs>
0: Okay, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, talk about it further. Austin, what about you? Yeah, I love this movie so
1: much. It was my foray into Coen Brothers. Actually, that's a lie. I saw Raising Arizona when I was a kid, but I didn't really appreciate it. But so in my in my actual like autonomous subjective years, this was my foray into. Coen Brothers, uh, I think it's amazing. And then last night, as I was watching it again, it was just resonating with all kinds of different strange existential themes that I'm sure that we'll be able to delve into. And then I was also seeing a lot of resonance with their other films, um, which I kind of boiled down in my mind to the awkwardness of money. So we can talk about that, I'm sure, as we go forward. But I thought it was really interesting. Ooh, fun, fun, Love this movie. Love Francis McDormand. Love Steve Buscemi. Love William H. Macy. I love the Coen Brothers.
3: Awesome. What about you, Kent? Yeah, this is a this is an interesting one because uh, just so happens to be the movie that you guys picked uh, to have me on is is my number one of all time. Uh, Ooh, I'm a huge, damn, I feel lucky, huge Fargo guy. Um, revisit this one often, multiple times a year. Sometimes revisit it again this week for for the show. Um, I never really seem to get tired of it. I want to, but every time I put it on. I find something new to like about it. I find some kind of theme, like you were talking about, uh, Austin, every single time that I didn't quite catch the the last time. Um, there's just something extremely simple about the film that I like. It's not uh, overdone. It's uh, not really full of itself. It's just a um, chronological story, a very simple one at that, and a good setup, and um, memorable, interesting characters. And it's just something uh, in a movie that I, I really never want to get rid of in my collection <laughs> i always uh you know try to downsize my blu-ray collection every year but it's always the one that's always number one there in, in the collection so um it's been great also how they spun it off into a tv series and that's a another part of this conversation maybe but um it's been a, yeah. it's been a really fun property to, to follow and the way they've spun it off has been really interesting as well so big big fargo fan over here and the fact that the tv show is as good as it is is amazing I mean when
0: I, when I when I heard they were making a TV show based off this movie I'm like okay well that's impossible to make good I mean you can't you can't replicate the Cohen brothers charm but I guess I'm the asshole um, <laughs> Yeah
3: it, it's the the TV show in my opinion has done nothing but make the movie even better it it hasn't done anything to ruin the reputation of the movie it's just enhanced the world building that uh, the Cohen brothers did in 90 uh 96 so this is a it, it's a property that I hope continues I mean um it feels like they can do seven or eight of these seasons uh, of Fargo. So i um, excited to see where it goes. You know, I just realized I didn't even say
0: what I thought about this movie. So if I can just get that real quick. Um, I love this movie. I love this movie so much. Uh, even it's been a while since I've seen it. I can't remember the first time i seen it. It was probably very early high school for me. I think I remember the first time I saw it, I probably didn't kind of pick up on the comedy as much as I did in later viewings. But last night when I put this movie on even the first scene when Jerry Lundegaard meets Carl and Gare I was like fuck yeah I'm so glad I'm watching this right now this is going to be captivating from beginning to end Yeah. Uh, so anyway that's what I think about the movie All right, so we're going to go into a recap, but before we do that, I want to remind everybody to check out WisecrackPlus.com. It's our patron service. It's our member service. It's going to allow you to get more podcasts like Wisecrack Edition Extra. It's also going to get you uh, merch and access to our Discord servers where you can talk to all the Wisecrack people. and. Come hang out with us, and we also have a book club that we're working on. And uh, actually, at the end of today's episode, we're going to have an interview with one of our patrons who has a particular specialty that is going to highlight some of the themes of this film. So, without further ado, on to the recap. All right, so, car salesman Jerry Lundegaard has precious little time before his money problems catch up with him. So, he hires two men named Carl and, I'm going to fuck this up, Gayer to kidnap his wife in order to acquire a ransom from his wealthy father-in-law. After an irritating ride to Brainerd, Carl and Gaier clumsily kidnap Jerry's wife. Later, they get pulled over, and Carl's blunders force Gaier to kill the policeman and two others. Pregnant officer Marge Gunderson takes the murder case and tracks Carl and Gaier to the Twin Cities. Meanwhile, Jerry has a hard time convincing his father-in-law to pay the full ransom, and eventually insists that he deliver the money. Marge's investigation leads her to Jerry's dealership, but Jerry dodges her questions, while Carl and Gare make it to the hideout cabin with Jerry's wife. Jerry's father-in-law goes to meet Carl at the drop point. Carl shoots and kills him, but not before he nicks Carl in the face. Carl takes their share and buries the rest of the money. It's only after having an awkward run-in with an old classmate that Marge suspects that Jerry might not have been forthright with her questions. When she confronts him a second time, Jerry blows the interview and flees the scene. Carl returns to the getaway house to find Jerry's wife dead, splits the money with Geyer, but a disagreement over what to do with the Sierra compels Geyer to kill Carl with an axe and put his body through a wood chipper. While patrolling, Marge spots Carl and Geyer's car and shoots Geyer as he flees from the wood chipper. The cops arrest Jerry, and Marge goes to bed with her husband, who announces that his painting of a duck will now be on the three-cent stamp. The two of them embrace as they look forward to the birth of their baby. End of movie. Um, So there's a lot, a lot of things to to talk about here. But the first thing I want to talk about is the element that seems to... I don't know if I want to say it's the most lasting thing, but it's definitely something that people talk about a lot. And that is the intro title screen. The thing that says, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. So uh, Claire... Did you know, since your first time watching the movie, what did you think when you saw that?
2: So I I did um, look it up afterwards and saw that, you know, that was all fabricated. <laughs> um, right. But I when I was watching it, I saw that at the beginning and my kind of initial reaction was like, okay, I don't care unless it's something that's really shocking if it's real. And by the end, I'd kind of forgotten about it. Um, and my, my ultimate reaction to that is that it doesn't matter if it really happened or not, which maybe it's... What they were going for, I, it, it, I, I see how it could be an interesting either commentary if we want to take it in a deep way, or marketing tactic if we don't. Um, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't really strike much of a chord with me either way.
0: But did it inform the way you were watching the movie on that initial viewing?
2: Not even and a little like, bit. Nope. Not, really? Not even one percent. Nope.
0: What about, uh, what about you guys, Kent and Austin? Uh, the first time you watched the movie. What did you think about that? And did it frame the way that you're experiencing the movie? And when you learned it was bullshit, how did that change it?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I took it serious the first time. I don't even think if it was a conscious thing that I it even occurred to me. I, I You know, I just thought... there. I've seen so many movies before that take liberties with based on a true story that I didn't care how real or accurate it was. I don't know if it framed my, my mind or, at all. But I just love the fact that they... Can take something that the film industry thinks is a convention where, based on a true story, it has to be true. Mm-hmm. And I remember there's a story William H. Macy was talking about, you know, talking with the Coens about the based on the true story thing. Like he didn't know, you know, halfway through the movie that this wasn't actually a true story. And he's like, but you can't do that. You, you can't, you, you can, it says here in the front of the script, you can't do that. And they're like, why not? <laughs> and he's like, I guess that's true. So I just like that they just took something that was. You know, brainwashes the the viewer into thinking it's true, and just throw threw that in there to add credibility to it. But um, I think this story could be true. I mean, this probably happened, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's the interesting. That
0: is the interesting thing. How we say that you know this versus Burn After Reading or any other Coen Brothers movie seems more quote unquote real, which I think is interesting. But I want to hear Austin's thought on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand the fascination with wanting to see dramatized real stories anyway. I I mean, I think that when people try to analyze the historical accuracy of a movie or uh, they they try to, to see whether or not it fits with the characteristics of a real biographical person, I just don't have any interest in any of that level of analysis. To me, that's boring. That's not what... A film does, that's not what cinema can do, that's not what art does so I just don't even care about that level at all I just watch it as a piece of art
0: Right, but I mean okay, so I guess I would argue that if you're looking at a painting, the frame of the painting will still inform the way that you consume the art, so I, I think that this is important, and it is gonna frame the way that you consume it in some way or another
1: Did you ever see the documentary uh, F for Fake? Well, is it a documentary? Hell yeah uh,
0: um, it's, yeah, it's Go it's ahead. more of a mock. You, I don't know, but yeah, Orson Welles, it it's fucking ace. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fucking brilliant, right?
1: Um, and I think it kind of deals yeah. with this sort of thing with with the the director or the artist as m- magician. And I think that that's what the Coen Brothers here are kind of playing with. And and to me, so I, it doesn't it doesn't really affect me because I'm always consciously aware that the historical basis or based on a true story stuff is all bullshit.
0: Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, no one seems to be too interested in this. I find it particularly interesting, and I think why? I find it interesting. Yeah, in the-
1: like, Yeah, why? How does it? What is? Is there like a juxtaposition that it, somehow it affects your viewing of the film?
0: Well, this coupled with the overall style of the movie, I think if you were to—I uh, mean, I think this is a very complex movie in the way that it's structured and a lot of the things, but I think— probably the most accurate way I can describe it as kind of docu-noir. Docu-noir was a late 40s style of noir that would use voiceover narration and were based on news stories and used styles associated with newsreels. And back then in the 40s, when you use that style associated with newsreels, it does give that elevated sense of reality. And even this movie has Mm. very natural lighting with very little camera movement. And I do think that this movie is trying to, maybe it's part of its... Kind of, and we'll talk about this next, but it's more kind of like salt of the earth message of kind of affirming that, you know, almost like comically quaint salt of the earth lifestyle as we see through Marge mm. Gunderson and her husband. And maybe it's just kind of in service of that. But I think that whether or not it affects you and I, I do think that if someone is told what you're about to see is a real story, they are going to consume it differently than if we don't see that. And um, yeah. I guess, I mean, I see where you're coming from, Austin. Like, ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's just what is the story. But I think it's just almost too interesting to to ignore the fact that they took a bullshit story and said, you know what? I think it would uh, <laughs> somehow elevate the piece if we told people that it was true before, beforehand, even though it's bullshit. Yeah.
2: So I might be going out on a limb here, uh, but maybe the reason that it was more resonant in 1996 than it is— now, at least I'm just drawing from the lack of resonance with me and maybe some of the other people who are watching. Um, is I think people are much more wary of things presented to them as true stories in the news or you know, in in anything. Now, you know, there's uh, I, I'm trying to stay away from the term fake news, but you know, pe- people are wary even when they think that they are being presented with something real. So that, given in the context of something that you know is a theatrical film um i think at least for me i'm just i'm just too jaded uh, i just even if it were presented to me as a news story i don't know if i would necessarily believe that it was real so especially not coming from the cohen brothers
0: and right and mm. this is before reality television was the thing that it is now and mm-hmm. I, I mean I, i'm not making i'm not making this claim but you could argue that this is kind of like the birth of reality television where we sell something as real but it's highly curated
2: yeah i think that's a great connection
0: so I guess my next question, I think this is more to what Austin was saying. I, I, I'm curious, what do you guys think the moral
3: message of this film is?
2: The moral message? Or just the message
3: Can in general. What is this movie about? Um, I've always thought the movie should end. Uh, this is like the one complaint that I might have with this film. Spoiler alert coming right now for a movie over 20 years old. So hopefully people have seen it who are listening in, uh, to this. But uh, I've always thought the film should end where she's in the scene with Stormare's character, or Franz McDormand is in the in the uh, car driving him away after after arresting him and says, there's more to life than money, you know? Don't you know that? You know, I've always thought that should be where credits roll, like right then. Um, and it kind of has a little epilogue mm-hmm. where you see what happens to Jerry and you see she sits in the bed with her husband and he gets the stamp and all that. But I've always thought that was kind of ancillary to the actual ending of the of the story um, other than finding out what happens to Jerry for the, AKA the guy who's responsible for all this stuff. But uh I've always thought it was that, that there's more to life than money or anything like that. That's always Jerry's thing. Like he cared more about money than he did his own family, than his own son, than his own wife, than his own, you know, in-laws or whatever, his own job or well-being. So um, that's always been what I took of it. That and just, you know, empowering and awesome female and Francis McDormand, a pregnant cop lady like that. That's the original Wonder Woman right there. Like that's Gal Gadot (laughs) 20 years ago. So uh, there's a lot you can kind of read into there, but um, that's kind of what I've um, read over it. Uh, yes, see. over the past few years has gotten from it.
2: See, I, I thought that the the last scene, the way they filmed it, was um, actually really consistent with the way that the rest of the story is laid out because for me, the way that they're telling it, and I think that this is um, you know, partially epitomized in the fact that the movie is called Fargo and only the very first scene takes place in Fargo. The, the story isn't actually about Fargo in the same way that the story isn't really actually about any of these things, the, the quote-unquote real events. It's not about the murder. It's not about the kidnapping. We don't even see most of the kidnapping. We barely see Gene's face. So I, I feel like the movie is um, in many ways about the little pieces that happen in between, the things that make it seem more real. And so ending on the note of um, Frances McDormand in bed with her husband talking about the stamp, that's what matters. The stamp matters. Um, the the guy with the wood chipper, that was kind of, you know. No, that was a, a day on the job. It was a stressful right. part, but that wasn't that wasn't what mattered to to her or to their story.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's her. It's her trying to convince to him that there's other things going on that that are more that are more important. And that's that's 100 right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's this there's this juxtaposition between the sincerity of Frances McDormand's character, who's about to bring life into the world. Right, she's pregnant and she has her salt of the earth kind of family with her husband. And she's a hundred percent sincere. There is no postmodern cynicism in. I don't think in any of the Coen Brothers' films, actually. I think that they they fit within that new sincerity school, right? That we that we uh, have identified in various other videos and things like that, um, and that you find like David Foster Wallace is oftentimes lumped into as a, a novelist. And um, and what I mean by that is that there is not an ounce of of. Um, distance in Frances McDormand at all. Like she really is proud of her husband for the three cent victory or the three cent stamp victory. And she really is confused as to why this world that um, it should be more about money is oftentimes not about money. And so what you get is this this awkward juxtaposition between her sincerity and all the dark violence and awkwardness that the rest of the film puts on display with all
0: these other characters. So I want to go more into this idea of awkwardness. But first, um, I agree with you. I guess my question is, and I actually uh, went back and read some reviews about this movie, Um, And one review from the Los Angeles Times said that this film was swathed in a call of superiority to its characters. And then another review in The Village Voice said that it set up their characters as objects of ridicule. Mm. And I think that they're probably drawing from, you know, when Frances McDormand, even though she's extremely kind, extremely earnest, extremely authentic, you know, there are parts in which the actual film itself perhaps complicates or trivializes that. Like, when she goes to the buffet, she is putting the grossest food onto her plate, just heaping <laughs> it up. Her um, There's, like, this deliberate specificity where her and her husband are eating Arby's. Like, oh, you got Arby's all over me, hon. Right, right. Um, Do you... Do, and, and I'm most curious to hear what Claire thinks, since it's is her first time watching it. And then also, when we bring in this whole thing with the title screen being a big troll, like, does this give a sense of detachment? Uh, does... It kind of makes me... Slightly question that this whole f- the whole film asserting the kind of comically quaint salt of salt of the earth affirmation of life is might be just kind of like a practical joke. Well, they're being they're being self critical because that's that's their that's their hometown, you know.
1: Sure. So they're being self critical, but I think there's a real sincerity, and they're kind of like joking with each other, right? Like you can imagine them sitting there writing and be like, oh my god, that's like our neighbor Bob, or that's like our neighbor Nancy, right? and i don't think that there's necessarily uh like a cynical din- distancing i think it's a really sincere love story but done through a sort of weird awkward kind of jewish uh, shlemelian kind of tale like all of their films <laughs>
0: that's like all Is of shlemelian a real word uh, i just made I mean, it I, one i know shlemiel but i love shmeli <laughs> i love shlemelian yeah <laughs>
2: Oh, I think it makes a big difference that the Cohen Brothers are from Minnesota because if they weren't, it could really look like they were yeah. shitting on Midwesterners right. for <laughs> the buffets and the uh, you know they they didn't have a casserole in there, but they might as well have. Um, and but but the fact that that really is their hometown, it I think that that does play to the idea that there's something very sincere about it. Um, but I'm I'm so glad that you brought up um, Marge's sincerity because that's one of the things that bothered me the most about the film uh, was Marge. I I like her. I mean, it's impossible not to like her, right? And that's the problem. I, I always am suspicious of a film that has a lead character who doesn't have any visible character flaws. Somebody who's kind of too perfect and they're pushing you to like too much. And so I It just made me, it gave me kind of this, um, this like suspicion about the film that made it harder for me to connect to it, uh, was the fact that Marge really didn't have any character flaws.
1: I mean, do you not think that over nicety, social nicety could be conceived as a flaw?
2: they weren't painting it as one. Her niceness was coupled with her being the most effective person. Uh, I mean, the whole movie is filled with people who are drastically incompetent. And she's one of the few very competent people. And part of the way that she is competent is through that Minnesota nice. Um, She is able to, you know, conduct really smart, um, like effective police interviews. She's able to, you know, Herself in uncomfortable positions, like with that guy at the restaurant, um, and she does it all well being really nice. So I don't ever see a place where her niceness detracts from her ability to be an effective cop. If anything, it only really adds to it, well, except for, which isn't a bad thing in itself. It's just it's just a, another way that she's not ever flawed.
1: Except for when she just takes Lundegard's lie at face value when he says no. Uh, no car has been stolen from the lot, so she just leaves. And it isn't until she learns right. about deception that she's been lied to before that she starts to see the cracks in the world. And I think so that's she's what she's too that, naive is her she's flaw. She's too naive, yeah. And And then her naivete gets awakened a little when she's in the car saying like, you know, there's more to the world than money. And I think that's that that moment when she has that self-revelation. You know, writers, uh, John Truby's a script doctor who talks about that there are these like seven points that every successful script has to have. And um, the seventh one is that the protagonist has to come to a point of self-revelation where they have to realize that the world that they're in uh, is – they can no longer live in the same way that they did before because they've changed. They've had a realization, right? And I think that's her verbalizing her realization even though prior to that – um, we've seen her act on the realization, which is when she makes the decision to go in and confront him, and uh, because she realizes that people lie and people are dishonest. So maybe I, I see what you're saying, but um, I, and I'm probably giving the Cohen Brothers too much credit because I'm such a fanboy and because I know that you know they studied philosophy. So I'm like, ah, oh, clearly they're so much smarter. There's something going on. So maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but um, but I wonder. I wonder if that kind of it's there just very subtly.
2: I just I I. I mean, if we were just to take the film at, you know, face value, which I don't even know what that means, but if we were to read the film, I guess, in a certain very straightforward way, I think I might agree that there's this, um, you know, naivety that shifts when she realizes that the guy lied to her about this dead wife, and so, you know, that triggers her realizing that Jerry is lying. But I find it really hard to believe that the chief of police even in a small town, is going to be somebody who's naive. She looks at a few dead bodies on the snow, like pretty gruesome dead bodies when she <laughs> arrives on the scene. And um, she's totally unfazed. She might puke, but it's only because of morning sickness. Uh, I, I Everything about her character speaks to her not being particularly naive. So then when we get her in this situation where we're supposed to believe that she is naive, I'm not buying it.
0: Mm. So I don't know whether to read that as naivete or just so much of the film's comedy. And I just feel like the overall aesthetic of the film is this idea of kindness covering up darkness. Um, One of my favorite Mm -hmm. examples of this and how it manifests in the comedy um, is so Jerry is trying to console his son after his wife is kidnapped. And he's in his son's room and then he very falsely gives him a sense of comfort, and then he closes the door, and then there's a poster on the back of the door of a guy playing accordion in lederhosen, and the camera lingers on this absurd image for a second, and mm. I I don't know. Did you guys... I, I always laugh at that part. It's so small, but I think it's um, it's more of this this culture of nicety that covers up this real fucked up nature
3: underneath the surface. Yeah. I, I really take a lot from the, the quote unquote, Minnesota nice that uh, the Coen brothers, you know, emphasize here. They talk a lot about, you know, growing up there and wanting to the people that weren't familiar with that culture to know what it's about. And I think if they didn't have that root there, that this could have been an extremely unsincere or insincere film and it would have come off as fake and lame, but it comes off as so realistic that it's almost it is like a documentary. But you talked about the uh, um, covering up the dark, and one of the scenes that defines that for me is Jerry in the diner with his father-in-law and, I guess, their friend, and they're talking about whether they should pay pay up or not. And Jerry, the entire time, William H. Macy plays, plays that up so perfectly where he's sitting there, and he's nervous and he's looking at his food and he, he's like, we should just pay up. We don't want to mess around with these guys. Oh, we should call the cops. We don't want to call the cops. And mm-hmm. he has this really dark conversation where he's basically telling his, his family that, uh, you know, he's not behind it, that he knows, uh, no, doesn't know what's going on. And then, you know, they're all leaving angrily and he walks up to the counter and they're like, how's it going there? And he's like, oh yeah, real good now. And it's just like immediately the Minnesota nice kicks in and the world is fine. You know, everybody's in this weird kind of, uh, um, you know, on cloud nine all the time up there or something, you know, they don't really come down to earth at all. Uh, And so, you know, that's obviously um, shown several times throughout the film, but I love that. um, Just there, it's like Canadians in South Park, you know, how they're always like, I'm sorry. And they're always apologizing. And there's just like this almost a caricature, but like Claire said, they can get away with it. The fact that they grew up there. So I want to talk about
0: one of the oddest things about the film and that is the structure of this movie How many movies have you seen where we don't meet our protagonist until 35 minutes into the movie? Yeah,
1: yeah, interesting, right? I didn't really even I wasn't super sensitive to it until last night where I was like Oh
0: fuck, I forgot that it took so long for us to meet Francis McDormand Yeah, I, I don't really think I can think of another movie like this And so my question to you guys is up until that point who are we rooting for? Or actually, yeah. who are we rooting for throughout the whole movie? Is it as simple as we're just we're just invested in this disturbing scenario until we meet Frances McDormand and then we're on board with her? Is it that simple? How did you guys react to that?
2: I think maybe that was one of the problems for me is because I started out not having anyone to root for and I wasn't sold when they gave me Marge to root for, so I never had anyone to root for. And that's not necessarily a fatal flaw in the movie. There's a lot of really good films that don't ever give you anyone to root for, uh, but that's maybe one of the reasons that I found it hard to get attached. So I'm really glad you brought that up.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think you, they set it up so that you think you're supposed to root for for William H. Macy's character, Lundegaard, right? And uh, you're like, oh, fuck, he's embroiled in this financial thing and he's coming up with a plot, but, you know, hopefully his wife doesn't get hurt and hopefully it's okay. But then you're kind of like, oh, man, he's kind of an asshole that he's orchestrating this whole thing and having his wife kidnapped just so he can get out of his financial troubles. But maybe you're rooting for him, but you start to realize that, like, there are no redeeming qualities about his mission that would that would elicit any sort of allegiance from the audience. And so there is this again, I keep using this word awkwardness, but I think that this film is really characterized by this awkwardness. And um, and if there is a tension that it creates in the audience, I think it is that awkward discomfort. And then when she comes in, there's an, a little bit of an alleviation of that awkwardness because they're at least trying to, whether successfully or not. Obviously, Claire doesn't think it's quite as successful, but I think at least what they're trying to do is then give you the, the sort of alleviation of the awkward that allows you to then have a typical pro- protagonist. And I think, but I think it does start off, it's like a bait and switch in a way. Right.
2: So Austin, I'd like you to say a little bit more on, on the awkwardness. You've mentioned a few times that that, um, for you, is one of the kind of um, biggest thematic uh I don't know, underpinnings of the movie. Um, But could you clarify a little bit what you mean by this awkwardness?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people think the Coen brothers uh, dwell in the absurd, right? And, you know, a lot of people talk about Albert Camus or Martin Heidegger um, and existentialism when they're talking about the Coen brothers. And so um, I actually think that I I would depart from that just a little bit. It's more just a modification of it because it still kind of flows out of anxiety or out of the boredom that you find in, in the writings of Heidegger. And I would actually take a cue from a a young philosopher by the name of Adam Kotzko, who has written a trilogy of books on these weird social conditions. The first one was called Awkwardness. The second one was called uh, Why We Love Sociopaths, or maybe that was the third one. And then the third one was called Creepiness, um, or the second one was called Creepiness. But either way, one is about awkwardness, one is about sociopaths, and one is about creepiness. And he basically identifies um, that there is this this shift towards the awkward, or what he says is that we're living in an age of awkwardness, and he identifies it as taking place initially in the 70s, and that's why you see the emergence of the Woody Allen Schlemiel character, and he says it's because there was no sort of cultural cause that people really had a passion for anymore. Um, after the, the sort of political revolutions of the sixties, it sort of, sort of started to die down a little bit in the seventies. And then in the eighties, there was like this, you know, uh, triumphant patriotism that sort of overcame the awkwardness. But then it came back again full of vengeance in the nineties. And he signals the, the show Seinfeld. Um, and Larry David, again, with the sort of Schlemiel type of characters as being the sort of uh, benchmark of 90s awkwardness. And then, of course, he talks about Curb Your Enthusiasm and things like that later on as well. Um, but I think that the Coen brothers really bathe in this awkwardness, and I think they do it at three levels in this film in particular, and, and I kind of wrote them down. One I said is social awkwardness, one is the awkwardness of money, and then one, uh, Jared, we might call the meta-awkward. And so the, the social awkwardness is at the level of plot, right? And it's, it's when norms, social norms are confounded or when social norms are complicated. So like you have these, uh, these prostitutes that uh, are sitting there talking with this police officer. And I love that scene so much because the awkwardness is palpable, right? Like the police officer, she's tr- clearly trying to be nice and, and get her information. But uh, they're just kind of sitting there kind of a little dopey, like nodding their head and kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's what happened, you know? And she's kind of like, okay, so what did the guy look like? He's funny looking. Well, is that it? And he's kind of funny looking, you know, different from other folks. and and so there's this weird awkwardness that at the level of plot that we're seeing because she doesn't want to be too intrusive, she doesn't want to be too pushy. Um, but nevertheless, uh, she's also trying to get her information. So there's that tension because of these norms, these worlds that are colliding that that sort of don't fit together. So it's the niceness of people, um, you know basically trying to maintain the social niceties in the face of their actual breakdown. And then the second one is the awkwardness of money, and it's how money creates strained social relations, and I think we kind of already touched on that, but I think that cuts through so many of the Coen Brothers films, the way they use money to create awkwardness. You see it in Big Lebowski, you see it in No Country for Old Men, um, and then I think the third level is what I call the meta-awkward, and then that is where the audience then feels awkward in the face of the awkwardness that we're seeing on screen— and then maybe in two ways at least that I could just think of offhand and one is that we recognize the awkwardness at the level of the plot and that causes the humor because it creates these weird juxtapositions and then it elicits a feeling of awkwardness in light of this Midwestern niceness and so I think that what's taking place is that they're actually displaying the Midwestern niceness and we look at this in a post-cynical world and we say, Jesus, that's weird and uncomfortable. Why are they talking and bumbling and fumbling over their sentences? Why can't they just say what they want? Why don't they just ask what they want. Why don't they realize that that person's lying? Obviously that person's being deceitful. And so I think those are the sort of three levels of awkwardness. And, and I think Kotsko's book really kind of gives a nice philosophical and sociological underpinning to this age of awkwardness that I think people should check out. It's, it's a short little read. It's just a little essay and you can find it online. And it, I think it's like just a couple bucks.
0: The, the thing you mentioned about the two women that uh, Carl and Gare sleep with, and then they're interviewed by Marge Gunderson, I definitely, I think that scene is one of the ones that you can point to and say that these critics might have a point in that, because what's the difference between them and Marge Gunderson? Like, one of them is certainly lampooned. Like, we're, we're getting a caricature of the of this Minnesota nice that also kind of equals Minnesota dumb. Right. So I can definitely see how these reviewers might have said that they're setting up all these characters as objects of ridicule. and But every <clears throat> Coen Brothers film does that. Like, literally, the culmination is A
1: Serious Man,
0: right? So, yes, and I love A Serious Man, but that movie is definitely more nihilistic than it. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is back to my point of what's the moral message of the movie? If the message is, you know, don't, that money isn't what matters, we ought not put the things that matter in our life at, at risk for the sake of money, then is that just a joke? Like, is that half serious? Maybe. Yeah, I feel like everything with the Coen
1: Brothers is half serious.
0: Right. Um, I, I'm kind of in the middle between both Austin and Claire here because I last night I found myself asking, who am I rooting for? Because more to Claire's point, like I don't think that Marge Gunderson is such a identifiable character that as soon as she's on screen, I'm like, okay, I want her to win. I want her to catch Jerry. I didn't really feel very strongly about that, um, I, and I kept on asking myself. What do I want to happen? And on one level, I really think that we're just watching this this event tragically unravel, and we're seeing everyone's getting the comeuppance for their greed or their sins. But at least in my opinion, I'm curious what you guys think about this. I think that on one level, we're rooting for Jerry in the sense that we want this whole thing just to go over smoothly and for nobody to get hurt. Exactly. Yeah, because we're
1: sociopaths. We're we're the
0: sociopaths. (laughs)
1: It's right.
3: framed in a way before we're intro to Marge that the protagonist is Jerry. But what we want to happen is for all this, like you said, for him to confess to everything, like, sorry, honey, sorry, everybody. This is a big misunderstanding, right? For him to be redeemed as a as a human being for for doing this. It never happens. And you end up rooting for Marge and she, you know, solves everything. But it's set up as he's the protagonist that you're just waiting for that. Um, that moment where he's going to realize he's in the wrong and it, it never happens. But, uh, but yeah.
2: See, I never, even for a second, uh, identified or wanted to root for... Uh, Jerry in any way. I, if mm. anything, I was rooting for poor Gene. Um, but yeah. I I mean, maybe this was something we weren't supposed to think about, but I, I did think about, you know, he's selling his wife out. He's getting her kidnapped, knowing full well that he doesn't know these people. She might get hurt. She might get killed. He does, he, he's, you know, he's kidnapping and, you know, being complicit in the abuse and eventually the death of his wife, which we can, if we're being realistic, kind of see. Coming a little bit. We at least know it's a possibility. So this is a guy who shows extreme um, like coldness and Mm -hmm. um, like towards his wife, towards this woman who is clearly pretty devoted to him from what we see in the first few scenes and is like the mother of his child. And the fact that he is willing to pay someone to kidnap and hurt her makes me just from second one, like, I, I feel nothing for this guy. I hope he gets shot. He didn't get shot. That was too bad.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting because I, so, yes, Everything he does is morally abhorrent, but I don't think that a character that does morally abhorrent things is the what determines whether we root for them or not. So, you know, the prime example is a clockwork orange. You know, like literally the first scene is uh Alex, you know, beating up a homeless guy and then raping a woman. And yet he is still our anti-hero protagonist that we root for in some perverse way. And I think
2: it depends who's watching the film. of, I, of course it always I, it
0: always depends on who's watching the film.
2: I hate Alex in a Clockwork Orange, and I did from the beginning. I just cannot ever, even a little bit, sympathize with a character who perpetrates violence against women, especially rape. I like I, I they are not an antihero for me. Like I want them dead from second one.
1: Yeah, and that's right. that's exactly what. Kubrick is exploring is you're supposed to feel that way unless you're a sociopath. But is there a sense in which he manipulates the audience a little bit to even elicit just a tiny bit of, okay, this is the guy's story, let's see how it unfolds? Even that hope of let's see how it unfolds is a type of sympathy. And I think that's where that weird tension comes in. And again, to plug this guy's books, the, the, second one or third one, whichever it is, where he says the book of Adam Kotsko, Why We Love Sociopaths, it's one of the things that he uh, addresses as well that is related to the awkward, right? And he talks about Seinfeld. And in Seinfeld, you have all these characters um, who they they live the awkward, but they don't really seem to be as affected by it except for George Costanza. George is the one who goes fucking crazy. Kramer's always kind of cool somehow. Elaine is kind of cool. Jerry seems kind of cool. Yeah, he has moments of freak out, but really George is the one who can't deal with the awkward. And it's because according to Kotzko and then according to a lot of people's interpretation of Seinfeld, especially that last episode, um, that's because they're sociopaths. You know, They don't actually recognize the norms of how— of how people ought to behave. And so what Claire is kind of talking about is you're absolutely right. You're not supposed to sympathize with these types of characters. But if there's even a moment where you're like, man, I, I wonder if he's going to get away or I hope I, I hope there's some sort of resolution or whatever. If there isn't just pure contempt for them throughout saying, God, I'm just waiting for justice to smite them, then maybe that's where that weird tension comes in. What about? I you? mean,
2: I'm not saying you're wrong that that's what they're trying to do.
1: Yeah, you just don't like it.
2: I just don't like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah,
1: no. no, and that's
0: good. That's because you're not a sociopath. <laughs> that's good. So I am a sociopath because I love the movie A Clockwork Orange?
2: No, it's... at it, ah, it, it, Last we figured it out. <laughs> uh,
0: no,
1: so so what, what Kotzko even says is he says all of us have a little bit of the creepy in us. All of us have a little bit of the awkwardness in us. And all of us have a little bit of that sociopathic tendency. It's not that we are, quote unquote, being uh, in our nature, final designation, identified as sociopaths to court. Um, even though some of these characters might be sociopaths to court, but that it elicits in us a sort of – that there's a commonality, that there's something sociopathic about the breakdown of those norms that kind of all of us can at least recognize and and feel sometimes. And if we don't feel it sometimes, that maybe we should pay more attention to ourselves in those moments when we do elicit those sociopathic or creepy or awkward tendencies.
0: So, Kent, I'm curious uh – What what do you when you ask yourself who am I rooting for in this movie especially when it's your as it's your favorite movie does it change once we're introduced to Marge does it not
3: Yeah, I think it does. I think Marge is such a like she's almost a Mary Sue in a sense where she's uh, like you said Claire the only flaw she really has is she almost pukes but it's because Mm. she's pregnant and she's carrying a baby you know what is she says seven months pregnant in this movie Yeah, two more Uh, months they say at the end and and like how much of an a-hole is that other cop, right? Like she's going to go check out the body while you stand by the car and like fill out the report, (laughs) you know, (laughs) uh, the pregnant lady. Uh, so it's funny with, uh, with that, but yeah, I don't know if it ever really changes. I, like I said, I want Jerry to get his comeuppance and to, you know, turn around and become a good person, but it never really happens. And, um, and I'm, I like the, the fact that, uh, everybody kind of dies at the end. Uh, you know, like I said before, I think this is really just um, a commentary on how suburban culture really is. That weird crap like this happens all the time and it's on the news nightly and we don't really think about, oh, two people murdered? Yeah, big deal, whatever. You know, and just another day. Um, but it it simultaneously helps you root for them and against them. and But you, at the end of the day, realize like everybody's kind of, got something to root against, if that makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I would say Marge is probably my, you know, the person I rooted for the entire time. We didn't really fluctuate.
0: Right. So I, I think what Kent is saying about this, the coming away with the movie of thinking that this kind of things happen in suburban life all the time really speaks more to the point I was trying to make about it as docu-noir and how whether mm-hmm. it's that opening credits uh, slide or the style of the film... There is something very deliberate here in trying to uh, have the audience accept it as either reality or a reflection of reality. Um, Mm. And I think that's particularly interesting. Uh, The next question I have, I don't know if this is actually answered. Maybe I just didn't get it, but do we ever know why Jerry needs the money specifically?
3: It was to do the parking lot, wasn't it? To open a parking lot business or something? Well, Well, I guess, how did he get... What
0: happened, like, like, why does he, why is he so in the hole with money? I know that obviously he's got oh, yeah, yeah. the something, like the car with, thing something with the with GMAC like serial
1: numbers. Something with the GMAC,
0: yeah. We, we don't, well, see, I don't, I don't think. I, 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 the way I interpreted that, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that he got into some money problems. So he got loans on cars that didn't exist to, oh, you know, yeah. pay Peter. But we don't know what the initial thing of how he got into this hole was, do we? I I agree. I I didn't notice it if we didn't. Claire, I don't know.
1: And again, you know, when you see a movie so many times, you kind of, you maybe sometimes skip over things because you project onto it. So I'm curious, Claire, did you notice that?
2: No, and I noticed that I didn't notice that. I have written down, like, <laughs> okay. why does he need the money?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I mean, they kind of talk about it in that opening scene. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the opening scene, of the movie in the strip club earlier, because to me, that's just such a great way to set up this movie. I mean, you meet the, the, you know, the two characters, the two shady guys, you meet Jerry, and then the first exchange between them is, sorry, I thought it was 7.30, but I thought it yes. was 8.30. And then that yes. awkwardness is immediate right from the start. And, uh, he's, you know, it's a very simple, Hey man, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm, I need some money. My wife's uh, dad has it. I need you to kidnap her for me. Like that's the entire movie right there. And, um, to me, that's all it is. We don't really, doesn't necessarily matter how he's in the, in the hole. The fact that he's in the hole and he needs the money, we, we kind of buy in and we're on for the ride from then on. No, I, I
0: agree. But what I would say is that I think it is a very strong choice to not tell us why he needs the money. Because I think, by doing that it the film refuses him any
3: sympathy. That's that's a good point. Mm. That's a great point. It's it's the golden briefcase of this movie, right? It's like right. doesn't uh, if we find out why I mean, you're right. He could be in the whole million dollars for some even shadier stuff than this. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we just don't know. Um, and maybe if yeah, we find if out, like oh, a- well, he was in the whole million dollars because he donated it all to charity. Then uh, we'd all be <laughs> like, oh, it's okay then. You know, like, yeah, uh, but yeah, just, yeah, even, he even if he was there, because it's even now, for the greater right? good. Yeah, yeah right, but exactly. <laughs> a lot of kids in Africa were fed because of this. So we're good. But even if he was a degenerate
0: gambler, I think even then we would, uh, you know, one could argue like, oh, he's, you know, has a mental illness, he can't help it or something like that. But I think that by not telling us, you know, we're able to make that stronger moral statement that he just fucked up.
1: That's interesting. I wonder what it is about— yeah. What is it about the human that it's like when we have the reason why, when we have like a sort of psychoanalytic reason, right? Like, oh, they were abused as a child or they experienced their parents' death as a child, that that elicits the response. But if you're like, no, this person's just an asshole, but you don't have that backstory, why that doesn't? I wonder, is it just because it doesn't connect Empathy. us to their story? Yeah. It, it it doesn't broaden out the empathic circle, you think, Claire?
2: I mean, yeah, I think it's it's literally that, that if we can identify things about our own experience that are similar, it, we're, we automatically kind of lean towards empathy even if we don't want to. Mm. And so when you get the backstory, even if it's something you haven't experienced, um... Maybe more often than not, you know, someone who has, or there's a little bit of that human connection that's, yeah. you know, definitionally empathy uh, that you just wouldn't and couldn't get without the backstory. And so I think that's a great thing to bring up. They don't want us to have empathy. Mm. Oh, but I remembered a time. So I, I was so like, hey, guys, you know, I, I never supported Jerry. Jerry sucks. I want him dead. And then I just remembered uh, a moment where I did feel bad for Jerry. And um, it was the moment when he was conning that couple with the, um, the rust-proof <laughs> seal on this, the car. You don't
3: even want that seal. <laughs> You're going to get yeah. oxidation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I, I felt that, and this is just just because William H. Macy is an incredible actor and God, his face looked like a puppy that was being kicked. Yes. Um, like it, it was, it was his face. Why is he such a good actor? Uh, but <laughs> it, when I was it's watching called practical him, Practical Aesthetics, he just,
1: that's his acting approach that he and his wife and uh, David Mamet developed. So for acting students out there, check it out. Practical Aesthetics. It's about being real and shit. Sorry, Claire, go ahead.
2: Okay. Well, that's why he's such a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it was it was funny. I He just looked so miserable about conning this couple at the same time as he's doing something really terrible. Mm. So watching him, um, like in one of the... I mean, of course, you know, he gets his wife kidnapped, but in one of the moments in the film where he is up in somebody's face personally causing them distress, that's one of the moments where I felt the most empathy for him. And it was just because of how sad he looked and how sad he looked, I think, kind of gave the impression that he didn't he didn't want to be doing this, that he felt like he didn't have a choice, that there was some reason that it was beyond his control to uh, to con this couple, that, that this was something he was forced into doing, but really, you know, he's a good person and he doesn't want to be doing this. And if you think about that for more than like two seconds, it's bullshit, but that's what that, what was it, Practical Aesthetics? Yeah. It's... Yeah, it, it got me to believe. It got me there. It was the one moment where I felt sorry for Jerry. Yeah,
1: sometimes it's referred to now as the Atlantic Method because they started a theater school in New York called the Atlantic Theater School. Um, or the Atlantic Theater Company, and then it's they have the Atlantic Theater School. But yeah, him, his wife, and David Mamet, it's their, it's their anti-method approach to acting that's all about making genuine, authentic connections with the other person and not with the character. So they say that there is no such thing as character. All it is is lines on a page, and you're just supposed to make an authentic human connection with the actual other human in front of you, and they have all these approaches to it. So um, it's really interesting.
0: All right, so a couple other things I want to bring up, one of which is uh, one of the characters that we don't see very often, uh, but I think is uh, handled really well, is Scotty, the kid. I think that the way that he's not shown really paints him very effectively as a victim caught in the crossfire, just deeply tragic. So uh, one of my, some of my favorite parts are when they're talking about Scotty. So the look on Jerry's face when Stan Grossman asks him how Scotty's doing, you can just tell, and maybe this is more of William H. Macy's amazing acting style, but you can just tell that he hadn't even thought about Scotty. And then my favorite thing is that at the end of the movie, Scotty is off screen. Um, he's saying like, Dad, did you call Stan Grossman? Dad, is everything okay? And I love how he's off screen. I think that's so effective in painting him as the victim that wasn't even taken into consideration.
3: yeah. I I completely I completely agree with that
2: assessment. I didn't take him into consideration.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it's it's funny because I mean, think of it from Jerry's perspective, right? If this all goes to plan, everything's fine, right? He his wife's kidnapped for a few days by quote-unquote unknown guys that we have nothing to do with. Um he gets his money, his wife is returned, he quits his job, he opens up this new business, everything's fine. So, I mean, that scene when he has to go into Scotty's room and he's like these guys, they just want money. Everything's going to be fine. They're not going to hurt mom. You know, like this whole thing, he's so confident that this plan's going to work out for him. And it's not until he realizes that it's gone awry that he has to, you know, that scene with William H. Macy rehearsing how he's going to tell uh, the dad, you know, you know, it's Gene. Oh, geez, it's Gene. Uh, You know, uh, he's like rehearsing how he's... (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that moment too. But um, yeah, to him, he's still so confident you know, over half the movie, he thinks this is all going to work out in the end. Like he's in denial that this is, is not working out because, you know, his mechanic vouched for a guy or whatever.
1: It's amazing how calloused he is that he thinks that there won't be long-term traumatic consequences. Like, yeah. Okay. Let's say it does go to plan. Let's say everything works out fine. His wife is going to be scarred for life. His (laughs) child is going to be scarred for life. Like, yeah, maybe he gets out of his financial debt, but It's amazing to think that the depth of, uh, what is that, insincerity that he he exhibits.
3: He's twisted, man. Yeah, but he's so nice about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Real good now.
2: So the, the spectrum of niceness is something that I wanted to come back to for a minute uh, because not everyone in the film is Minnesota nice. And on one hand, you know, we see these, the, the, the two guys like tall blondie and, you know, Steve Buscemi, who I love that everyone kept describing him as just kind of funny looking, you know, <laughs> like not, not in a real specific way, just generally kind of funny looking, um, that that was Irish. That wasn't even Minnesota. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so so there's them. But they're they who even knows where they're from. But we also have uh, the father-in-law who uh, Mr. Mr. What is it? It's not. Gunderson, Gundersons, Marge Gunderson, oh, Gus, Gustafson, Gustafson, yeah, Gustafson—they they all have Scandinavian last names. Um, Mr. Gustafson—he is not Minnesota nice, and he is not playing around. Mm. Uh, and you also see—and this I'm sure has to do with a lot of family dynamics and whatnot—but um, but Jerry is really kind of cowed under this, you know, very intimidating, uh, father-in-law authority figure. And you also see, um, that this clicked with me when I was watching it, when, uh, Steve Buscemi has to hand over his $4 to the guy at the parking lot. And he yells at him, what, you think you're some kind of authority figure? You think because of your uniform, you're an authority figure? Um, And there's this real, I think, kind of tension of masculinity that's um, working against this Minnesota nice. So the men like Jerry, I'm mostly thinking of Jerry, but then, you know, Beyond that, Marge, who's not a man and who I think we could argue exemplifies like almost weirdly specific femininity in, in a lot of ways, um, there's that niceness played against the like bravado and desperate need for authority of the people who are not nice. Um, so I, I haven't really fully teased out what that means or even if it was, I mean, I'm sure it was intentional to some degree, um, but yeah, where there isn't Minnesota nice, there's this really over-the-top kind of need for masculine authority. Uh, And I thought that that was interesting where I noted it happening in the film. And it it happens with a few different characters. And
1: this is where I think it fits in maybe with uh, what I called earlier the awkwardness of money. Because so the the older gentleman, he's not nice, but he's also the rich one. Uh, Jerry doesn't get nice when he is under financial pressure. Uh, Steve Buscemi and the other dude... They're not nice because they're just like hitmen, basically. They're just like hired guns, right? So, again, it's about this money and there's this. Well, and one kills the other one over splitting a car. Exactly. And then, of course, when you have the sincere, you know, juxtapose that to the-, the sincerity at the end in the car when Frances McDormand is talking, giving her little soliloquy about money, I think that maybe what you're talking about, Claire, too, also fits because I-, I don't think that the masculinity that you're talking about is separate from the awkwardness of money. I think they infuse one one another. And even though, you know, I don't want to get too, like, uh, lefty here as I am somewhat want to do, um, I I do... Oh,
2: get lefty, Austin. (laughs) Do it.
1: I do think that the implicit implicit critique of capitalism, let's say the implicit critique of crony capitalism to make our libertarian friends and more conservative friends happy, is that um, unfettered, unchecked greed for money does create this weird social tension. And it does, uh, it does then delude that niceness that would otherwise exist among, you know, normal middle class people, you know, the salt of the earth, middle class people who, yeah, of course they have financial pressures, but they're not so consumed by it. They're consumed by the other things, the important things, right? They're like Claire said at the beginning, they're consumed by family and love and, 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 and relationships and things like that. And so that niceness covers over the greedy niceness, or maybe the greedy, the greediness is what kind of destroys the middle-class niceness of of the Midwest. Something along those lines.
0: So I'm glad that Claire brought up Wade uh, because I actually want to pose a question to you guys. So earlier, Kent said that, yeah, the message of the movie is that there's more to life than just a little bit of money. And the people that overemphasize the importance of money are, you know, the ones that kind of get put in the ground. Uh, where does Wade, uh, the father-in-law, he, he too seem to be too interested in money. Now, granted, I think if we look at the movie, we can say that even if he said, sure, Jerry, take the money, deliver it, it still would have went wrong because uh, whatever, uh, Gare's character kills the wife anyway. But I think that that same moral uh, lens that we judge Jerry through, we can also judge Wade through. Do you guys agree, disagree? In what way? Well, because Wade is saying, oh, you know, a million dollars, that's a lot of money. Or, and like, he he's just... He's so
3: fixated. He's more fixated on the money than he is his daughter. Yeah, his unwillingness to give up the briefcase is what ends up getting him shot, right? Yeah. He's like, no Claire or or no Jean, no money, right? And he's like, that's not the deal. He's like, I don't care. No Gene, no money. I'm not giving up a million dollars unless I know for a fact that this, I'm going to get my daughter, right? And he's not he's, willing to take that job. he confused
2: me with the dead wife?
3: <laughs> oh, did he say Claire? <laughs> yeah, no, he did. I name, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it's Jean, <a> sorry. <laughs> but yeah, like it's over and a, over. A lot of names flying at me. A lot Wait, of it name. always says, million dollars, that's a lot of money. Right. You know, yeah. over well, his, and over.
1: His whole identity is structured around money, right? Like, even when we first are introduced to him, it's through Jerry talking about how he's rich. And then the first scene that we meet him, it's when he's going to stay for dinner. And then he and Jerry talk. And the thing that Wade says is, you know, don't worry, Gene and Scotty, they're taken care of. They don't have to worry. And so, again, his identity
0: is just simply as the rich guy. That's, that's well, how I, he's portrayed. Yeah, I also think that... It, one of the best ways to introduce a character is the introduction of Wade. We see the first shot of him. It's a low angle shot with a wide lens as he watches sports. He's gripping his fist as the sports thing is going on. It's so efficiently and precisely establishes him as like the alpha patriarch.
1: And that goes to it's what just, Claire it's just was talking tech, about.
0: Tech, 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 yeah, I know, but it's just technique really yeah. nailing that down.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, these guys, they are they're masterful filmmakers. They can create yeah. a world through... Not just at the level of like concepts and ideas, because I actually think they're. They're less explicitly conceptual than, say, someone like – is it Alex Garland who wrote Annihilation and like Ex Machina? Who he seems to be to me like he tries too much at the stage of the designing principle and at the conceptual and then he tries to make a story fit that, right? He's like, oh, I want to explore post-humanism and so I'm going to make a movie about that. That's cool. Whereas I think they just want to tell stories about interesting people but because they're so philosophically attuned – that there's a richness that undercuts their plots. And so they're just very good at creating this world at the level of character and at the level of the human that it that explores these weird social concepts, but does so in a way that's almost tangential. Yeah.
2: Jared, I had totally forgotten about the introductory scene where they, yeah, the low the low angle on Wade as he's watching sports. I had a hundred percent forgotten about that, but that's so perfect. That's such a good example.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for today. I want to thank our special guest, Kent, from the Mad About Movies podcast. Thanks for joining us, Kent. Had a great time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, dude. Yeah, so guys, just want to remind you guys, check out Kent's podcast. It is Mad About Movies. You can find it on iTunes and all that fun stuff. Um, And as for everybody, where can we find you on the internet?
2: Um, I'm on Twitter at Claire.
1: And Austin? Yeah, Austin underscore Hayden. Hit me up on Twitter and we can fight about philosophy and shit.
3: <laughs> and Kent? You can find me on Twitter at Kent Garrison and our show is at Movies on Twitter as well.
0: Yeah, I recommend you guys check out their latest episode on Ready Player One uh, for those of you who have seen it. Um, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to give one last shout out to say if you guys are interested and if you like what we do and you want to be more engaged with us and you want to get a peek at our process and our research, definitely hit hit up WisecrackPlus.com. I want to thank all my guests, and that about does it for today. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey everyone! Thanks for sticking around. This is the Wisecrack Plus Patron Podcast Correspondent section. Wisecrack Plus is a community of smart folks who have interesting, fresh perspectives, and so we're plugging into that community by inviting patrons to lead discussion segments on our podcast. So today's Patreon Podcast Correspondent is Jonathan Ramirez, who studied political science at UCLA and is interested in law and political structures. He'll be talking about Fargo through a legal and political lens. My first question, Jonathan, is uh, one of the things that we couldn't come up with an answer for in the podcast that I think you might have a, um, an interesting insight in is why do you think Jerry owes all this money? And and how are we supposed to think about the unverified vehicles thing? I'm not, I can't quite put that together.
4: So I was thinking about that also, but I also think that the answer doesn't matter. I don't think it matters why he owed the money, but it was used as a ploy for you to seriously look at his actions rather than his, you know, the, the way he was presenting himself.
1: Okay. Yeah, it is interesting that that I like what you say that that he just kind of would do these bad things anyway. There does seem to be a a serious character flaw within him, and uh, but it's covered over by that niceness. I so like oh geez, oh geez, rather than dropping f bombs or anything like that. Like he can't even yeah. swear, even though he's plotting to have his wife kidnapped.
4: And, and literally gives no uh, two shits about his son. Like he's like, yeah, mom will come back, blah blah blah. He'll right. be he'll be fine, right, right. And, but it really doesn't matter. So I felt. In the beginning, I felt some sympathy because he was in that situation of like, what well, you told me $19,000 was for that car. And then after like just seeing his character, evolve, I'm like, i I care nothing about this guy. He is a bad person, no matter how well you presented.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan, I wanted to ask you one of the things that we touched on. Um, I want to hear what you, like, did you find yourself rooting for the bad guys, or when, uh, one of the questions I'm always super interested in hearing about when people watch this for the first time is, who were you rooting for up until the point you meet Marge, and then after you meet Marge, does it change at all?
4: So, before Marge, I was uncomfortable. Like, I wasn't rooting for anybody because, uh, based on like, the title card, I was already, the title card messed me up. I was like, it was something along the lines of, this is a true story, so we're going to uh, omit names, but in reverence to the dead, we're going to tell it as it is. And when they present the the hit on, or the kidnap, uh, I couldn't root for anybody. I didn't want the kidnappers to win. I didn't want Jerry to win because he's you know doing this against his wife. But Marge, I, I was always rooting for Marge just because you know she was trying to do a good day's work, no matter how bad it got. So for Marge, for me, it was always Marge. But even before or after, I was like, can it be like I was rooting for Jerry to get caught? <laughs> mm. So justice, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah rooting right. for justice. Right, right. Yeah. But up
0: until you meet Marge, are you just general, like, I hope this guy gets caught? I mean, I, I feel like most cinema, doesn't it— I mean, at least my gut tells me that it functions, that there has to be an individual that you identify with. I feel like if for the first 30 minutes we were just saying, I hope this guy gets caught— I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is enough.
4: Well, does it take 30 minutes for us to meet Marge?
0: Yeah, 35 minutes. Jeez. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, I mean, that is like
1: that is the rule of thumb, right? When you read all these script books that try to tell you how to write a, a good movie, they all say that, you know, it kind of starts with the character and you want to introduce the character and the character's struggles and their weaknesses, you know, within the first couple of pages of the script or whatever. And so it is, it is kind of the rule of thumb. So I think we're... We're conditioned to expect that, but there's something really nice about it not happening. There's something really refreshing about it, kind of confounding our expectations. And then I think that 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 kind of contributes to the weird, awkward
0: tension of the film itself. Mm. So, um, tell me what this movie says about the
4: American dream to you. Mm. It's super sad that it's the American dream, because um, if you take it, okay, if you think of it in a way where you wanna think that Jerry is just down on his luck, that there's no way, like, what what kind of a, a land do we live in where, or well, not Austin lives, but used to live, where. <laughs> a man can't just work hard enough to pay off those loans, you know? It goes right. back, like, my dad's always saying, like, I've been living here forever, and living expenses have gone up so high, but my salary hasn't gone up more than 5%. Like, it's mm-hmm. it goes back to that sham where you are basically governed by a ruling class i don't want to get too left but just seeing how (laughs) the numbers go that the the middle class is just working as hard as they can and when they're down on the luck their luck there's no social net there's nothing that they can turn to besides crime or besides this outlandish scheme to have his own wife kidnapped so he can extortion his father-in-law for that money if Mm. you look at it in that sense
1: did you do you know who Yannis Varoufakis is, Jonathan? No, I do not. Okay, so he was the finance minister in Greece in 2015 when Greece was going through their or they were trying to go through some certain debt negotiations when the new government came in and it was a, a sort of radical left government called Syriza that got elected in Uh, I don't know if you know much about Greece, but they're in what's sometimes referred to as a long depression right now. And exactly what you're talking about, uh, this idea that that people are straddled by debt and their incomes aren't rising – uh, takes place at an individual level. But I, in Greece, you see this at an entire countrywide level where unemployment was at like something like 40% of um, 500,000 people, which was a sixth of the working population were actually owed like six months back pay, but there was no liquidity in the bank. So they weren't actually even, even able to pay. And so Giannis Varoufakis was the defense minister and he came in to try to negotiate with the powers that be, which are, they call the Troika in Europe, which is the European Central Bank, the European Commission and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And we don't have that quite in the United States because we have our own sovereign currency, we have the central bank, so we can kind of print our own dollars so it's a little bit easier. But he was kind of appealing to them to say, hey, can you, can you restructure our debt? Can we come up with a plan where you can work with us so that we can pay you back your money? And he wrote a memoir called uh, Adults in the Room that you might find fascinating because it talks about how really what these creditors wanted was just to assert their authority and their power. They didn't actually want their money back, regardless of how reasonable these debt restructuring plans were that Varoufakis and his colleagues Uh, in the finance ministry and in the broader Greek government, the Syriza government would propose. So it was really interesting to see. And there's another guy that you might be interested. His name is Jerome Roos. He's a a young... Researcher at Cambridge right now, I believe, and he does work on debt colonies. And he wrote an article on Viewpoint magazine called something about the debt colony. So if you just Google Jerome Roos and it's R O O S and debt colony, and it's about the sort of rise of the debt colony and how really these, these, the imperial sovereigns today are, are creditors. They're the ones who actually have the power over political power and economic power and social power. And it's really, it's disconcerting, um, because it does affect that american dream that no you can you can make anything of yourself if you just work hard but if you're working hard and you're only making a five percent increase in salary but inflation has outpaced that and cost of living has outpaced that then then how are you able to
4: actually live that dream how is it still an american dream it's an american nightmare
0: right yeah, so Jonathan, you mentioned uh, your dad and how he's been working really hard his whole life, and you would think that in a situation where he works hard, he should be able to build himself out of this. I'm curious as to your opinion on Wade, uh, the father-in-law. I, I'm curious as to how what you see his character as. Like, I mean, obviously, Jerry had an opportunity. I mean, he had an ability to get him, himself out of this bad situation, but is it that the father-in-law character is too evil to help his family or do you think that um it's all that the tragedy only starts and ends with jerry it's all his fault
4: does that make sense it does um i don't think I, i mean like i said if you see the reason that jerry is in debt for you know family reasons like if they would have told you like oh uh, Gene actually was in a terrible car accident and they needed to pay $500,000. And that's the reason why he got in debt. Then that would be a tragedy. But it's literally up left to the viewers. If you think like he just got into some gambling debt, then you would think like, oh, he dug his own hole. Like he didn't have to lay his own bed. Uh, but with Wade as the father, I. I don't know if the Coen brothers at that time would be talking about toxic masculinity, but it kind of mm-hmm. feels like it because and he has one line where he says like, oh, Gene and what's the son's name again? He was like in two scenes. I forgot it. Scotty. Yeah. He's like, Gene and Scotty don't have to worry. After he said like, I'm so worried about them. And then he responds with, no, they don't have to worry. So it's yeah. like kind of way telling Jerry's like, no, you're the only one that's going to, you know. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah, that's like a, a real th- tragic there's like a part to me.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there's, a real, there's a threat in there that he can be pushed out. And there's a real tragedy there in that you would go as far as to risk the life of your own wife before you grovel to your father-in-law you know but like
4: is it a tragedy hmm. though like he made that choice for pride i think maybe prideful reasons because like if i have someone that owes me money and rather than come to me and say like hey you know that money i owe to you i can't pay it back right now but instead they keep prolonging it and then they dig themselves into a bigger hole rather than just put their pride aside and say like i can't do this what can we do to work this out
0: and even if wade did give him the money he would never, I mean, his low opinion of Jerry would be even lower.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Plus, and and there's that's a whole
0: other thing that we never even explored is that Jerry works at Wade's car dealership exactly. and, right. he's, yeah. and, and, and he's like extorting money from the dealership. And so basically, yeah, things, it's just raining shit on
3: Jerry.
1: Well, <laughs> his masculinity then is already called into question, right? Like he's not quote unquote really a man. Right? right. Like, no, you know, Jared is. talked about this in the episode that the dad is the alpha and like Jerry can't even he's not even his own autonomous self-made man. He works for his father-in-law. So it's almost as though he doesn't have that that masculinity. He doesn't have that that character of a man that we sort of prize so much in, in Western culture. Um and it isn't, and this kind of goes to that thing that I was talking about too, about the awkwardness of money, you know, like Jonathan was just saying, there is something interesting. Like, why wouldn't you just go to your dad and be like, dude, I'm in some trouble. Uh, I need some help. Let's, let's work together. And it's because we're bred to feel awkward, that we're bred to feel like failures if we can't take care of it on our own and we can't yeah, ask for shame. help. Yeah. It's a shame. And you can use that shame as a weapon. Exactly. And Wade does. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Oh, I mean, his whole, I mean, you could think that that Jerry's whole life is shameful. You know, if we do, like, like Jared just mentioned, if we do then think about how he's actually even, his whole livelihood is dependent on him working for his father-in-law. His whole, his whole
0: life
4: is about shame. Why is it always Jerry's though that are groveling individuals? Even Jerry from Rick and Morty. (laughs) Like like in
0: Rick and Morty. Yeah, This also kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen Brokeback Mountain, Jonathan, but we see that one of the main themes of that movie is like, can you still be a masculine figure while being a homosexual. And one of the challenges of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character is that he works for his father-in-law, and his father-in-law is constantly belittling his masculinity and stuff like that.
4: Mm. Yes, yeah, especially because uh, uh, my ethnicity is from Mexican background culture, so we're not like—I I didn't cry until like I was— Probably watching my first play, like feelings of emotion, feeling of shame, feeling of lack of until of almost adult age, and when men aren't allowed to do that, you get put into mm. the situations where communication doesn't happen. So maybe that would be the tragedy if we knew more about Jerry's backstory. Like he just didn't know how to communicate, and the American Dream is actually the American Nightmare, and it pushed this perfect storm on him that made him a sociopathic just masterminding, trying to uh, like get this money and leave. That is interesting to think about because maybe he was trying to get that money to get the fuck out, huh? Yeah, He was just done. Yeah, he's like- Yeah, we done. don't know.
1: Like, yeah, he wants to pay his debts off. He's obviously in a bind. But I guess I just always read the film as he wanted to get the money so that he could right the wrongs and then get things back to normal. But he didn't realize the consequences that he was- kind of subjecting himself to but maybe i mean you never know maybe he would do that and then he obviously doesn't care about his wife or his kid enough to think about the trauma that he's exposing them to so yeah, maybe the argument
4: just, yeah the argument of him trying to right his wrongs i don't believe i don't buy it because if you're trying to right your wrongs then why have it set up in such a cruel and manipulative way especially when he's rehearsing his lines like oh geez wade oh geez, mm. <laughs> jeez wait, jeez wait. like I, I don't know I don't think that's a man trying to right his wrongs
0: hmm. all right cool all right well um, that's going to wrap it up for our first edition of the Patreon guest correspondent I want to thank Jonathan for taking the time well obviously I want to thank Jonathan for supporting us uh, your support Always. is what allows us to keep going so we really really appreciate it and thank you so much for coming on and having this insightful conversation with us
4: thank you for having me
0: Absolutely. Yeah, dude.
1: It was lovely meeting you, man.
0: Yeah, lovely to meet you. Um, Awesome meeting you And for those of you listening, if you want to be involved with some of this, check out WisecrackPlus.com. And that's all from us today. Catch y'all later. Bye-bye.